Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you part one of the case of Anthony Avalos in Lancaster, California. Let's get right to it. In 2018, Anthony Avalos was a fourth grader at El Dorado Elementary School in Lancaster, California. According to his teacher, Harmony Bell, teaching Anthony was a dream. She described the boy as everyone's best friend, always happy and a joy to be around. So much so that she had made Anthony the classroom ambassador, and it was his job to help welcome new students into the classroom. In court testimony, Harmony recalled that she and Anthony had a special bond. He'd always bring her graham crackers from the cafeteria and share his love for the Bible with her. ABC7 reported that a note on 10-year-old Anthony's report card, written by Harmony, read, Anthony absolutely amazes me. He is so kind and considerate to others, arrives on time, keeps a smile on my face all day long. I can't imagine my class without him. June 7, 2018 was the final day of the school year. Of course, Anthony had passed the fourth grade with flying colors and was promoted to fifth grade. And he, like all the other kids that day, could barely contain his excitement. The school year was finally over and all the kids looked forward to sleeping in and long summer days full of sun and fun and no homework. But even in the middle of all the excitement, Anthony took the opportunity to thank his fourth grade teacher for the time they spent together that year. Little Anthony always drew pictures and wrote sweet notes to Harmony Bell, and the last day was no exception. Anthony gave his teacher a handwritten note. It said, Dear Mrs. Bell, thank you for teaching me everything you could. It was such a blessing to meet you. I just hope that when I'm going to six, that you can come to New Vista so I can see you still. I hope that you can come to my high school, middle school, college. That way we will still see each other for school years without a problem, because how close we are and how we are best buddy friends. I wish I can come to your house sometimes, because how much I miss you over the weekends and summer breaks and breaks. The letter went on to read, I just want to stay with you forever, but I can't. I just hope you have a good rest of your life because you already know that I'm going to have a good life. So I'm hoping you will too, because you do a lot for us. Thank you for teaching me in fourth grade. Love, Anthony Avalos, your friend. Of course, any teacher's heart would melt into a puddle after receiving such a thoughtful and sweet note from one of their students. But what Harmony Bell could have never imagined was that this would be the last note she'd ever received from Anthony Avalos. And when he walked out of her classroom that day, it would be forever. In reality, the happy life Anthony described in his letter was only partially true. Somehow, this 10-year-old boy remained joyful, happy, and kind, despite what he was enduring outside of the classroom and behind closed doors. An awful truth that would be revealed just two weeks after he walked out of Harmony Bell's classroom that final time. On the afternoon of June 20th, 2018, a call came into a Los Angeles County 911 dispatcher. On the line was Anthony's mother, Heather Barron. She was distraught, pleading for help as she told the dispatcher that her 10-year-old son wasn't breathing. She went on to say, quote, he went to sleep and he woke up and he felt like unresponsive. Emergency medical services, along with deputies, were quickly dispatched to the scene at the Village Point Apartments. When they arrived, they found 10-year-old Anthony Avalos not breathing and in full cardiac arrest. Deputy David Pine was on scene first and he immediately began chest compressions in order to save the boy's life. 
As he was performing CPR, more deputies and medical personnel arrived. When officers began to speak to the other children in the home, Deputy Pine overheard Heather stating, Why are you questioning my kids? I didn't do anything. As they worked quickly to render aid to the boy, they couldn't help but notice that this didn't appear to be a boy who had just gone to sleep, suffered a medical event, and woke up unresponsive as his mother had stated to dispatch. I mean, how does one go to sleep and wake up unresponsive in the first place? Her statements on the 911 call were confusing at best, but perhaps you could chalk that up to a mother who was in a desperate situation trying to get help for her son. But what couldn't be explained away quite so easily were the multiple abrasions, bruises, and cigarette burns to the child's body, or the fact that Anthony was so malnourished his ribs were visible through his skin, which first responders noticed immediately upon arriving on scene. According to LA Mag, Anthony's injuries and malnourishment was so severe that one of the paramedics stated that he looked like a zombie. Anthony was dehydrated to the point that paramedics couldn't establish an IV, one of them later testifying about not being able to find a vein to give him fluids or medication, stated that his veins were probably collapsed. Instead, paramedics had to drill into Anthony's shin bone to insert a special needle to administer the fluids and medication directly into his bone marrow. This is used as a last resort means when IV access can't be established by more conventional methods. And further, Heather Barron already had conflicting stories about what exactly had happened. According to later court testimony, at one time she stated that Anthony had hit his head the day before while playing basketball, but moments later said that Anthony had thrown a tantrum and threw his head back, and at another point, Heather claimed he had been injured in a fall. And her demeanor at the scene seemed off, not like a mother who was desperate for her firstborn child to be saved. Heather Barron did not cry, she did not scream, and did not appear to be concerned, as first responders performed CPR trying to bring her son back to life. Deputies noted that emergency personnel who were treating the boy appeared to be more upset than his own mother. Statements from two of the younger children in the home, the ones Heather was so pissed officers were speaking to, definitely raised even more alarm bells. Deputy Brandon Vannersdale spoke with Anthony's half-siblings, and they told him that Anthony behaves badly, actually using words like temper tantrums and discipline, words that seemed off considering their ages. And they both gave nearly a verbatim statement, saying, My mom doesn't hit me. Nobody hits us. It was odd, to say the least almost as if the children had been conditioned to parrot those words any time they were asked. Anthony was rushed to nearby Antelope Valley Hospital, and doctors were able to restore his pulse. He was later airlifted to UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital to receive specialized pediatric trauma care to give him the best chance for survival. The first responders, the initial ER team, and the team at UCLA fought tirelessly to save Anthony's life. As they did, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department began an investigation into what happened inside that apartment that left a 10-year-old boy on life support. And the scene painted a horrifying and somewhat puzzling picture. According to LA Mag, detectives noted bloodstains on the carpet, locks on the outside of the children's bedroom doors, and a leather belt in a bloodied hamper. Next to Anthony's bed, they found a bottle of hot sauce, and under some loose carpet in a corner, a pile of uncooked rice. What was with the hot sauce and rice? As officers processed the scene, detectives began speaking with those that knew Heather and the children. They learned that Anthony lived at that apartment with his mother, Heather Barron, siblings, and his mother's live-in boyfriend, Kareem Leva. Between Heather and Kareem, there were 12 children, including Anthony, ranging in age between 11 months to 12 years old at the time. And best I can tell, before Heather and Kareem got together, 
He had five children who it appears all resided with their mothers. Some of them had visitation with their father. Heather came into the relationship with four children as well, Anthony being the oldest, with who court records referred to as Destiny, Raphael, and Angel, his three younger half-siblings. According to LA Mag, Anthony's father had left Heather when Anthony was about seven or eight months old, and at some time left the country and moved to Mexico. Heather moved on to new men, eventually giving birth to the other children, but things didn't work out with their fathers either. And when it came to the children, according to relatives and later social workers and counselors, Heather basically let them run wild. She seemed to struggle to make a connection with them and at times battled depression and violent bursts of anger, often directed at the children. The children were punished by Heather physically and she would strike them with whatever she had handy, to include belts, shoes, hangers, a wooden spoon, ping pong paddles, you get the drift. Members of her family had confronted her about the abuse, at times notifying child welfare officials, which, believe me, we'll get to. Heather's treatment of the children had long been a point of contention in the family, but when confronted, she told her family that what she did to punish her kids was none of their business. In 2015, she met that now-live-in boyfriend, Kareem Leva, at a party at her brother's house. At the time, Kareem was working at the same shipping warehouse as Heather's brother, David. And Kareem? Well, he was certainly no choir boy. He had grown up in El Salvador. He and his brother Mauricio were involved with the street gang MS-13. According to the DOJ, MS-13, or Mara Salvatrucha, is an international gang involved in drug and human smuggling prostitution, murder, and extortion, among other illegal activities. The gang is known for being extremely brutal with some claims that they actually practice Satanism and ritualistic killings. But that's a whole different topic for a whole nother day. Even after Kareem Leva immigrated to California, he remained associated with MS-13, linking up to a San Fernando Valley offshoot. He was known in the gang by the name Lace. For what reason? I don't know, but I can guarantee it had nothing to do with fabric. And this wasn't exactly an affiliation Kareem tried to hide. He had multiple gang-related tattoos, at times shaved his head, which was also tattooed, and wore a goatee, which is common for members of the gang. According to LA Mag, Kareem Leva had a history of domestic violence with at least two women, filing charges of domestic violence and being granted orders of protection from him. All of this had occurred before he met Heather at that party. However, shortly after the two met, they began dating, despite concerns from nearly everyone in Heather's family. With Kareem around, the treatment of the children went from bad to worse. And in just three years, Heather went on to have three more children with Kareem. This, of course, bringing us to the grand total of 12. It's almost the end of the school year, and for me, that means the kids have award ceremonies, end-of-year celebrations, field trips, and performances. With all the running around, the last thing I want to do is make another stop for groceries. It's this time of year that I'm more thankful than ever for every plate. Not only do I make less trips to the grocery store, I'm paying less for meals delivered right to my door. And you can too with every plate. Every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping with no hidden fees. So you can count on great value week after week. Plus, only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients. And the best part? You don't have to compromise quality. Every plate's recipes include only the highest quality ingredients, including sustainably sourced seafood that meets the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood rankings. So you know your meals will be fresh and flavorful. And there are so many options. You can customize every plate meals to your liking, with options to swap proteins and sides or add a protein to veggie dishes each week. I love being able to plan my meals each week with just a click of a button, all while saving money. 
and now my listeners can save with me. Get started with EveryPlate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code LEAST149. Again, that's everyplate.com slash podcast and enter code LEAST149. At the hospital, medical staff confirmed what paramedics and officers already suspected. Anthony hadn't been injured from a fall or playing basketball. The physicians that treated Anthony both at the local hospital and the children's hospital noted and later testified that Anthony was severely dehydrated, emaciated, had multi-organ failure, and trauma to his brain. The level at which this little boy was dehydrated was completely incomprehensible. Not only were first responders not able to secure a traditional IV, Anthony's blood nitrogen levels were through the roof, which indicated severe dehydration. According to Dr. Michael Gertz, one of the doctors who treated him, a normal blood nitrogen level for a 10-year-old child would be around 10 with anything over 20, a sign of significant dehydration. Anthony's level, 170. The doctor's opinion? The severe level of dehydration Anthony Avalo suffered would be fatal to 100% of all people if not treated. And even with treatment, Anthony's kidneys had already shut down. He had no chance of recovery but even if he had somehow, he would have had to have been on dialysis for the rest of his life. And that was just one problem. Dr. Andrew Nick Madikins, who also treated Anthony, found that almost every one of his organs were failing when he arrived. He went on to say that the boy's eyes were sunken and his body was bruised and burned, and that a CT scan showed bleeding and swelling of the brain. Dr. Madikins would later testify that the trauma to Anthony's brain was so severe, it was similar to shaken baby syndrome. At the hospital, the nurses, doctors, and detectives found Heather Barron's behavior strange, just as the first responders had. Los Angeles County Sheriff Sergeant Robert Wilkinson, then a detective in the Special Victims Bureau, said that when he responded to Antelope Valley Hospital that day, Anthony was lifeless and bruised with many tubes and monitors attached to him. But Heather, the boy's mother, sat in a waiting room and according to Wilkinson, she, quote, didn't appear very concerned with what was happening to her son in the next room. Heather Barron was notified while at Antelope Valley Hospital that Anthony was being transferred to UCLA and that he was not expected to recover while detectives were in the room. At that point, she stated, Oh my God, oh my God, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. Don't tell me that, don't tell me that. That's my baby, my firstborn. I promise I didn't do nothing. She went on to say that she just wanted to hold her son, whom she said was just telling her that morning that he loved her. Heather kept stating over and over that she, quote, didn't do nothing and then seemed to shift the blame for Anthony's injuries to Anthony himself. She stated, I promise you I didn't do nothing. He has been throwing himself. He has. I promise you he has been throwing himself around. Here's a small clip of that initial interview. Heather Barron now claimed that Anthony had injured himself so severely that his brain was bleeding while throwing himself around during a tantrum, all while she alluded to the fact that the child was dehydrated and malnourished because he didn't want to eat. Completely plausible story, right? It only got more stupid from there. 
As Heather was questioned about the head-to-toe injuries all over Anthony, the explanations she gave were downright dumb. ABC7 reported that when asked about significant scrapes on Anthony's knees, she claimed he got the injury while playing basketball, but then made them worse because he liked to pick his scabs. And there was absolutely no way the burns to his body were from a cigarette, but she thought they looked more like spider bites. Heather Barron went on to state, I'm no Pearl Fernandez. I know you guys are coming at me like, like I'm Gabriel's mom. And it was nothing like that. I promise I did not hurt my son. I did not let nobody hurt my son. I promise you to God, you can give me a lie detector test. I did not do this. Pearl Fernandez, of course, being the shit stain, who had been convicted alongside her douche canoe of a boyfriend in the murder of her eight-year-old son, Gabriel Fernandez, in a case of horrific abuse that shocked the world. Heather Barron could deny it all she wanted, but the fact was that the case of Anthony Avalos was strikingly similar to that of Sweet Gabriel. In fact, it had occurred roughly 15 minutes away from where Gabriel had been murdered and some of the same agencies and people were involved in both investigations. As it turned out, officials with the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Families had been informed of multiple allegations of abuse against Anthony and his siblings at the hands of their mother and Kareem Leva. And like I said, we'll get there. The Los Angeles Times reported that when Heather Barron's brother David and his wife Maria learned of Anthony's condition, they rushed to the hospital. That's where Maria found Heather in a hallway. Maria asked to see her nephew Anthony, but at first, Heather wouldn't allow it. Maria crouched at her feet on her hands and knees on the floor and begged and pleaded to be able to see Anthony. She told Heather she was sorry for reporting abuse allegations, grasping at straws, saying anything to be able to see the nephew that she loved so much. Heather eventually allowed Maria into Anthony's room. Anthony was lying on the bed with cords, wires, and sensors all over his body. The beeps of medical equipment and hissing sound of the ventilator breathing for the 10-year-old filled the room. The boy who had once filled a room with joy and laughter was now still and quiet. His four foot six inch, 77 pound body being kept alive by machines and monitors. How could this have happened? His Aunt Maria and Uncle David and others had tried to save him, but now it was too late. Despite the best efforts of physicians at Antelope Valley and UCLA Children's, the following day, on June 21, 2018, Anthony was pronounced deceased. And the more investigators learned the depths of the dark history of abuse Anthony and his siblings had been suffering became painfully clear. It had happened again. Just as in the case of Gabriel Fernandez, repeated failures of the agencies that are supposed to protect children had led to the death of another innocent little boy. Some of the same damn people working in those agencies who had failed to act for Gabriel failed to act for Anthony. Clearly, nothing had changed. There had been 13 reports of suspected abuse against Anthony and his siblings between 2013 and 2017. In four years, there were 13 reports. Yet Anthony Avalos remained in that home with his abusers. According to court documents, February 28th and March 4th of 2013, when Anthony was four years old, a complaint with defects was made alleging Anthony's maternal step-grandfather had been sexually abusing him. That claim was substantiated by the Department of Families and Children, yet they took no action. No safeguards were put in place to protect Anthony from further abuse. DFACS also took no action against Heather Barron, despite the fact that she allowed this monster access to her son, a monster who had abused Heather herself when she was a child. 
She knew what he was capable of, yet she allowed Anthony to spend weekends at the step-grandfather's home. On April 29, 2014, a report of general neglect and physical and emotional abuse was made by a family member pertaining to Anthony and three of his half-siblings. The caller informed DFACS that Heather Barron was hitting the children with objects such as hoses, yelling at them, and locking them in their rooms for hours. Anthony verified this account to a caseworker who interviewed him at school. And when the social worker visited the home, Anthony and one of the other children disclosed that Heather had hit them hard with belts. Further, Anthony was still struggling with the trauma of being sexually abused. Yet Heather herself told the social worker that she had stopped taking him to the counseling sessions because the therapist was more interested in her than Anthony. The social worker didn't even ask what the hell she meant by that. Caseworkers substantiated the neglect claim and the family was referred to the department's voluntary family maintenance program. Under the program, children can stay with their families while they work to resolve issues underlying the abuse. It's designed for low-risk cases in order to reduce the number of children in foster care. But there is often no judicial oversight or an attorney to represent the child's best interests. And that was the case for Anthony and his siblings. And sadly, for Gabriel Fernandez, too, who had also been in this exact program. According to the LA Times, one of the caseworkers assigned to Anthony was Matthew Mansfield, a veteran DFAC supervisor who also played a role in Gabriel's placement in the voluntary program. In that case, Mansfield was later disciplined for the move following an internal inquiry according to grand jury transcripts. In Anthony's case, Mansfield and his colleague Mark Millman brought in counselors from the Children's Center of the Antelope Valley to provide services for the children and their mother. An assessment written in June of 2014 by a counselor read in part, based solely on the information provided by Ms. Barron, the assessor believes that her capacity to provide suitable care for her children is severely limited by her poor parenting skills, poor judgment, and denial and lack of awareness of her mental health issues. And twice, a social worker assigned under the plan visited the home, yet failed to interview any of the children. The plan took effect in May of 2014, and lo and behold, while this plan was still in effect, more allegations of abuse. This time from a counselor named Wendy Wright at the Children's Center. The Children's Center defects had assigned the family to who spent a significant amount of time with Anthony, his mother, and the other children. Wendy called the abuse hotline to report what she had witnessed. The entire time I was there, and I was there twice in the same day because it takes about two hours per child. Okay. So I was there in the morning, then I came back in the afternoon, um, and I was there a very long time. Um, I saw nothing but anger towards those children, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. She showed absolutely no affection towards any of them. Okay. Even the two weeks, at that time the baby was two weeks old. Okay. She seemed completely de detached. Other statements overheard by the counselor on visits were, he's a little shit, he's a little punk, shut up or I'll have to put your ass on time out, and shut up Marie, you're faking it, you're making yourself cry, I don't even feel pity for you, you're annoying. Shane Bulkley, another DFAX worker who was assigned to investigate Wright's report of abuse, wrote in his notes that Baron cursed, yelled, and acknowledged hitting the children with a belt. When Bulkley showed up at the home to interview the children, Heather Barron refused to allow any of her children to be interviewed without her present. Despite Heather Barron sitting in on the interviews, one of the children disclosed that his mother spanked him and put hot sauce in his mouth. Following the half-assed interviews of the children, the social worker finally spoke with the counselor 
who had called the hotline to report the abuse. And she stated that she had called the hotline because when she contacted Supervisor Millman, you know, the guy who was supposed to be overseeing this whole voluntarily plan, quote, he seemed to blow it all off like there was not a problem and that he had not even had the mother taking parenting classes or anything. Counselor Wendy Wright expressed her concerns for the children's safety to the social worker, who then called Millman. According to court documents, Millman said he had no concerns for the children, and that even though Barron did cuss and yell at the kids, that was just because she was overwhelmed by having so many children under the age of seven, and that Heather Barron was doing the best she could. In November of 2014, while still under the voluntary plan, another therapist at the Children's Center, Crystal Gee, called the abuse hotline to report that she heard one of the children say, she's bad because she whips our ass. The reporter further stated that Barron continues to get frustrated easily and hits the children as a form of discipline, and that Heather Barron even threatened the children in front of the therapist, saying, don't think because she is here, I won't whip your ass. With all the multiple reports, according to the LA Times, a software program the department used to score the children's risk of being abused indicated that the likelihood was high and recommended increased supervision. However, Bulkley and his supervisor overruled the recommendation and closed the investigation saying they did not have evidence to substantiate the allegations. In December of 2014, the Los Angeles Department of Families and Children took the lunacy a step further and released the family from the voluntary program. Millman and his supervisor, Mansfield, took the Children's Center off of the case and enlisted a new agency, Hathaway Sycamore's Child and Family Services. Hathaway Sycamore's Child and Family Services was the same agency which had provided similar services to Gabriel Fernandez through its counselor, Barbara Dixon. Let's talk about Mrs. Barbara Dixon for just a moment, because how this woman still had a job at this point is completely beyond me. Barbara Dixon admitted on the stand that in the case of Gabriel Fernandez, she had witnessed extensive injuries, but withheld the information from the child abuse hotline, violating state law and common human decency, especially given her job description, not to mention the only reason she even agreed to testify was because she was granted immunity from charges. But sure, Los Angeles County Department of Families and Children's Services assigned that woman to the case. I mean, really, if that ain't enough to gag a maggot. While the records provide no explanation for the switch, Crystal Gee would later testify to a grand jury that she considered her removal and its timing odd. And I'm with Crystal here, in case anyone was wondering. After dipshit Dixon was assigned to Anthony's case, the focus of her counseling to reduce the abuse in the family was directed at Anthony, not his mother. Her case notes show that she counseled him to listen to his mother more attentively and to finish his homework. Her notes spanned about a one-year period from February 2015 to January 2016 when Anthony was ages six and seven. The notes depicted the boy as prone to whining, crying, and tantrums that she said made parenting him difficult. Some of Dixon's notes were cut and pasted from one session to the next, and they did not mention the new allegations of abuse that arrived at the child abuse hotline during the time she worked with the family. I don't have words that won't get me banned from the whole internet. If it wasn't bad enough that Dixon came into this child's life, this was around the same time Kareem Leva also entered the picture. 
In April of 2015, according to a complaint, one of Anthony's younger half-siblings showed up to a weekly visit with his biological father with injuries including an old bruise, a visibly red ear, and an abrasion to the back of the child's neck. The child told his father, Mom did this to me. The father took the child to the police station, but the child completely shut down and wouldn't tell officers what had happened. The police reported the allegation to the Department of Families and Children, and yet another social worker was sent out to investigate. When the social worker arrived, Heather Barron was waiting on the front porch with a prepared note she claimed came from the child's daycare, which explained the injury. She refused to allow the social worker inside, and the social worker left and scheduled a later visit which was a clear violation of the department's policies. Three days later, the social worker was back, and Heather again refused to allow the children to be interviewed without her present. And when the child was interviewed, in the mother's presence, he told the social worker that his father had inflicted the injuries. That would have been highly unlikely and damn near impossible since the child had been with his mother at the time and had been immediately taken to police when the injuries were discovered. And with the conflicting stories, nothing made sense, but again, DFAX took no action. The social worker also told Heather that she would need to conduct a background check on all adults living in the home. A home it was blatantly obvious Kareem Leva was now living in, but Heather lied and said he wasn't staying there. And the social worker pressed no further. Heather also lied, claiming the children were still receiving therapy twice a week through that voluntary care plan. You know, the one that had been over for four months at this point, but the social worker didn't even take the time to check the records where she would have discovered this well-documented fact. Instead, she noted that Heather Barron had, quote, strong parenting skills, and the investigation was closed. In June of 2015, another report was made by a DFAX worker concerning Anthony's half-sibling again after Barron brought the child to visit his father at the DFAX office. The social worker reported the child had a visible bruise to his forehead, a scrape on his chin, and a bruise to his upper forearm. Heather Barron claimed the injuries had occurred in the child's father's care a week prior. The social worker knew this was a lie as the child wasn't in his father's care that week. But again, no action was taken. At the time this referral was made, there were already seven prior referrals and one open referral, which was more than enough to have all of the children permanently removed from the home. But of course, that didn't happen, and things began to escalate. By September of 2015, Anthony was enrolled at Lincoln Elementary School in Lancaster. At the beginning of the school year, he told Vice Principal Gia grew that he was being severely abused at home. She, of course, reported the abuse. Um, a little boy told, uh, um, told me today that he moved out of his home and into his aunt's home. Mm -hmm. He and his brothers and sisters because his mom was hitting them and locking them up in their room for long hours. Um, I'm looking at my notes. Um, thanking them, putting them to do captain's chairs in the corner. Okay, what is that, Captain Chairs? Captain Chairs, he demonstrated it for me where he has to put his back up against the wall and kneel down, like bend down. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a spine strengthening exercise, but mm -hmm. it could also be considered like discipline. Mm -hmm. If you're making a child do that for a long time. Okay. If they're hurting their thighs. Okay. And you said locking them up where? In the um, their rooms for hours on end. And so the aunt went and took them. Okay. And they've now gone to go live with the aunt. Around this same time, Anthony also disclosed these allegations to his Aunt Maria and Uncle David during a visit at their home. Anthony also told them that Kareem Leva whipped their faces and legs with a belt and dangled Anthony's younger half-brother upside down from a staircase. And Maria and David acted quickly. 
When Heather came to pick up her children, they physically blocked her from taking them and called 911. Sheriff's Deputy Michael Geraldo responded and called the child abuse hotline himself to report what he had just witnessed. I went back in and talked uh, with a couple of the kids, and a couple of the kids have told me some things that uh, make me not want to release them right now. Um, I'm not going to release them. Uh, basically, they're saying that the guy, Kareem, that I referred to earlier, mm -hmm. he, um, he's been pretty physically abusive to him, hit him with belts in the face, hit him with belts on the leg. Uh, he's put him in, like, a seated squat position against the wall for tons of time on end. He locked him in the bedrooms. Um, apparently, he held the youngest, Raphael, by his ankles over uh, the flight of stairs. And that wasn't even from Raphael. That was from Destiny who gave me that information. And uh, I tend to believe the kids. They seem pretty shaken up when I talk to them about it. Um, Mom, at this point, says she's willing to leave them here with brother. Brother is willing to have them stay here. Okay. So that's where I'm at. Okay, so you're leaving them with the brother for okay. um, for how long? Um. Yeah, I guess until you guys come out and uh, do that referral that you guys have open right now, that five-day referral. The following day, Anthony's uncle, David Barron, also called to report the abuse himself. Um, he said Kareem dragged him on the floor. He you know, slammed him to the floor. Like he'd pick him up and throw him on the floor. And Are they like rough playing, or is he doing this intentionally no, to cause harm? He, um, he, he's admitted he doesn't like the kid, so he just treats him like crap just because he doesn't like him because he's too hyper and stuff. So he, he locks him in the rooms, and he's grabbing him by his ankles because they have a two-story house, mm -hmm. and he would hang him upside down by his uh, ankles and start shaking him like, oh, I'm going to drop you if you don't stop. And like, I was thinking if he slipped one time, that would kill the, baby, the kid. So. Okay, when did all of this happen? What the um, we just found out about it, but I guess it's been going on for months now. And they, they uh, my sister and, and him said if they would tell anybody that they would be in a lot of trouble. And then when I saw the bruises, I asked um, Rafael, like, what happened? And he told me. So I separated the kids and I asked each one individually so that way they can just say the same story. Mm -hmm. And they all told me the same exact thing. He wouldn't feed them until mommy came home. He would give them cold showers. And then, uh, he, do you know what an Indian burn is? No. Is oh, that like a grab, carpet? No, it's like a, you grab somebody's arms and you just start twisting your arms back oh, and forth really hard. okay. Yeah. And he was doing that to them also and then throwing dirty diapers at their heads. And so your sister and Kareem stated that if they told anyone, they would be, they they, would be in trouble? Yes, and then um, after Destiny told us, uh, we, we let my sister know, like, do you know that Kareem's abusing your child? And she's like, no, 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 it's not true. And then when she took her home, she, um, she kept telling her, you need to say it's not true, it's not true. And Destiny said, I'm not going to lie. I need to tell the police the truth because we told her we were going to uh, tell the cops. And so she grounded Destiny and locked her in the room and didn't let her come out until the next day. David went on to report that the children had told them they had been locked in a room so long that they had urinated and defecated on themselves. That Kareem Leva slammed them into walls and dragged them by their ears. He also told the hotline worker that Leva was a member of the MS-13 gang and that he was afraid of what he might do next, and that the children were so hungry they hoarded food. When asked how long this had been happening, the children were heard in the background responding, a thousand weeks. David told the hotline worker that Anthony's mother is, quote, cutting herself and saying that she hates life. I have pictures of her slitting her wrist and saying that she wants to die. Two days after that call, another new caseworker showed up and Anthony repeated everything he had told his aunt and uncle. He then said, Heather is my old mom. This is my new house. I am part of the Baron family. I'm never going to see Heather again. She locks us up in our rooms and makes us starving. This new caseworker then called Dipshit Dixon and two other Hathaway Sycamore counselors who had been working in the home for seven months. 
and they told the caseworker that they, quote, have never heard anything from the children about abuse and neglect. Despite all the reports and what this child had just claimed, or the fact that they had never interviewed these children without their abuser present, or that Heather Barron had lied every chance she got, or that this child never wanted to go back to his mother's home again. The red flags weren't even red flags anymore. They were freaking billboards. But the social worker wrote in her report that she was unwilling to draw a conclusion about abuse based solely on what the children told her. If she had done her damn job, she would have discovered the mountains of evidence. David and Maria Barron showed up to the DFAC's office looking for information about the investigation and how they could maintain custody of the children. According to the Los Angeles Times, they were incorrectly informed that they'd have to speak with Heather Barron for any information pertaining to the case. And they were not informed that they could file a formal petition to the court for custody. The last week of September 2015, Heather brought the children back into her home and completely cut David and Maria out of their lives. If you remember, it was Maria pleading with Heather in the hospital to see her nephew just one more time. This is what she apologized to Heather for in desperation, for trying to protect the boy she loved so much. After Anthony had been back in his mother's care, the social worker visited him at school. He told her his mother was, quote, starting to be nice and does a new thing where she does not lock the bedroom door anymore, according to DFAC's notes. A month later, after being back in Heather's custody, Anthony and his siblings recanted their allegations of abuse. The detective from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department that had been assigned to review the allegations closed his investigation after one failed attempt to reach Kareem Leva. He never even spoke with Geraldo, the deputy who called the child abuse hotline. In December of 2015, the new social worker marked the allegations from Gru, Geraldo, and David Barron as inconclusive. And that same computer system was used to score the family's risk of abuse and neglect. And once again, it rated it high and recommended a greater level of intervention. But the social worker and her supervisor decided against any further action. In later testimony, the social worker said her decision relied on the children recanting their prior claims of abuse. She testified that she was unaware that victims of abuse often retract their accounts. How are you even a social worker? Dixon and Hathaway Sycamores ended their work with the family the next month in January of 2016. But Heather Barron didn't stay off the radar for long. In April of 2016, another call came into the abuse hotline, this time from Mildred Blue, a teacher providing services to Heather at a domestic violence center. Mrs. Blue reported to the hotline that the children arrived with bruises and told her that Kareem Leva had forced them to fight each other at home. She also reported that they appeared hungry and that one of the children actually ate out of the trash at the center. When interviewed, the children denied the allegation, and that's where the case ended. No contact was ever made with Kareem Leva. In fact, as far as I can find in the records, he was never once interviewed by anyone at the Department of Children and Families, despite the allegations and despite the fact that he was the father of three of Heather's children. Near the end of 2016, at least one more call to the child abuse hotline came in regarding Anthony's family, but the exact details are unknown other than caseworkers marked it unfounded. It was at this point Heather Barron cut off everyone and transferred Anthony Avalos to a new school, El Dorado Elementary, 
where no one knew about any history of abuse. No one was looking for signs. No one was on heightened alert. And by this point, Anthony had learned that not a principal, a teacher, a caseworker, a police officer, or even his own family, despite their best efforts, could save him from the hands of his mother or her piece-of-shit boyfriend. Anthony poured himself into school and being the best fourth grader he could be. Walking into that classroom every single day with a smile on his face, never mentioning the absolute hell he was enduring at home, and instead showing kindness to everyone who crossed his path. Join me next week for the conclusion of Anthony's case, because we've only tipped the iceberg into what really went on behind the closed doors of that apartment. As always, you can find more information on this case on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.